0: counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis.
2: Good morning and we're starting with some good news this morning and that is coming out of Missouri. They have paved the way for saving kids from gender mutilation and my good friend Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins me this morning to discuss and uh, you have had sir, a significant win uh, at the trial court level in Missouri. Tell us all about it.
1: Well, this is a huge win in the fight to protect kids. We're the first state and nation to successfully defeat a preliminary injunction that would have blocked our law that prohibits sterilization of children. And that law, our success in court, has allowed that law to go into effect yesterday. And it's a safer world for kids here in the state of Missouri uh, than it was two weeks ago.
2: Which is so fantastic, and it's amazing that anyone would challenge such a law, but uh, the ACLU did, and you and I were talking yesterday um, on my podcast, and and you let me know that the, the argument apparently was under the Equal Protection Clause. I mean, this is just so ridiculous. So what were they even challenging?
1: Well, you're right. It's absolutely absurd. They raised constitutional challenges, basically arguing that there was some kind of constitutional right to sterilize children. And we all know the Founding Fathers never would have intended that in any any text, history, or tradition of the, of the United States or Missouri Constitution. And, and it's also kind of absurd if you think about 100 years of equal protection clause jurisprudence has codified around the fact that you can't discriminate based on immutable characteristics. And yet the plaintiffs here are positing that gender is somehow mutable. So their entire argument falls fails on its face.
2: Absolutely, and and this is where the manipulation of the Constitution and the leftists trying to go into the Constitution and take out words and phrases and then manipulate them, pervert them, and and try to warp them for their own purposes is so frustrating when we see that, as you said, the history, the text, the tradition, the original purpose has to be read in context. And, and this is where I, I think it's so frustrating looking at so many challenges from the left um, on things that are clearly against the, not only the Constitution, but against reality, like immutable characteristics. Um, and yet, they're trying to promulgate these types of arguments in court seriously. And and so how do you suggest that other states follow uh, this Missouri blueprint now to protect kids in their states as well?
1: Well, I'm really proud of the work we did uh, from a litigation standpoint. We coordinated with other states, other like-minded state attorneys general in the lead up to this court battle. And we were able to take lessons learned. I mean, other states have gone through the same legal challenge. Other states have enacted this kind of statute. So what worked? What didn't? What would they have done the same? What would they have done differently? And what, that, that helped us formulate a legal strategy and helped us come up with an evidence list and a witness list and, and a, a strategy of how to to fight back and, and shine the light of truth on this issue. And again, some of it's just talking about this the right way. Detransitioners are victims of a system. Uh, you know experts for the other side are really just pseudoscientists masquerading as practitioners of medicine when we know that this is nothing short of gender mutilation child sterilization so talking about it in the right terms and popping that bubble shining the light of truth on it exposing the lie to the left is really critical and going to open court i mean Forcing the other side, forcing the plaintiff, forcing the ACLU to put on their evidence and letting us test that evidence through the process of cross examination, then allowing us to put on our evidence. And again, putting that in open court where the judge sees it, the public's invited in to witness it, and the media can't run and hide from it. That's really critical to winning. And we're going to, we're going to, we've drawn up this winning plan, we're going to hand it off to the next states.
2: That's fantastic. And for people who may not know uh, and haven't read specifically this legislation, uh, what does it do in terms of the protections for children from gender gender mutilation, puberty blockers and so forth?
1: Sure. Senate Bill 49 here in Missouri is a landmark piece of legislation passed by our General Assembly, signed into law by the governor that puts a moratorium, uh, puts an end to. Uh, Any prescription of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to children under the age of 18 stops referrals for uh, permanent and irreversible uh, gender transition surgeries that are nothing short of mutilation and sterilization puts an end to that for children under the age of 18. Also, creates a private cause of action. So victims of this system have up to 15 years to bring a claim against anybody who recommended or facilitated these kinds of procedures. We know that it's not based in science. It's not based in medicine. And now we have tools to fight back against it.
2: I'm speaking with Attorney General Andrew Bailey out of the great state of Missouri and this, uh, this right to, to have a, a private uh, action and bringing that against anyone who is involved, um, is that limited to the so-called professionals like the doctors and um, the healthcare care workers and, and social workers and so forth that are recommending this or does that also include the parents?
1: Yeah, I think there's all sorts of legal remedies for victims of the system. I think Senate Bill 49 is targeted at the healthcare professionals. It also allows for a you know, discipline on any uh, licensed officials' uh, professional licensure. But there are other causes of action. And, and what this does is this creates, this opens that floodgate. And I, and I know there's an increased attention on it. There, there was never a standard of care uh, solidified around, codified around these kinds of procedures because there wasn't medicine or science to back it up. And that's what we exposed at court. When their experts, when the ACLU's experts took the stand, we cross examined them and forced them to admit under oath that the studies they were relying on in pro- proposing this kind of, these kinds of procedures and care were weak science at best, and that they were ignoring the science coming out of Europe, showing that these are harmful, dangerous, long-term ne- negative uh, consequences for, for the kiddos that are, that are being forced into this system. And so, you know, again, shining that light of truth on this issue puts the marker down, and when the judge, in paragraph 10 of his order, denying the preliminary injunction last Friday, says the science is unclear, the medicine is unclear. It, it creates, the, the, the evidence adduced creates more questions than answers. That pops this bubble again, shines the light of truth, and evaporates this notion that there's somehow a, a, a consensus around a standard of care.
2: And and that is so great that we now finally have that on record and these these uh, professionals that are testifying under oath that there isn't a standard of care. I mean, and I don't even have to be a doctor to understand that it's not care to go in and mutilate children. I mean, it, anyone who is just reasonable and looks at reality understands that that is the case. But to see that they can't defend this, uh, where do you think that they're going to take the argument from here? I mean, does that just uh, potentially pave the pathway for them to try to put together other studies that will come back and challenge this and somehow manipulate, quote unquote, the science uh, to come back and say, well, now we have this standard of care and, you know, look at all these other studies that we've funded by dubious sources uh, just to try to promulgate this effort.
1: Well, certainly we know the, the depravity of the left. Uh, they have an an ideological incentive, uh, and certainly some have a financial incentive to move in that direction, and we were able to expose that on cross examination as well they're, they're quote unquote experts uh, you know we were able to demonstrate their bias uh, both financially and, and ideologically, and so I think that really hurts their credibility it'll it'll taint the credibility of any pseudoscience that they publish going forward and at the end of the day, they can't get around the fact that there are other experts on the other side on our side who testified that. This is the only mental health disorder in the DSM-5 that's treated with hormones. It is not treated with more traditional mental health services like psychology and psychiatry. Why would we race to hormones with this condition and not others, especially when there's no studies, no medicine, no science to back it up? And the studies coming out of Europe that have been going on for a decade now are going in the other direction.
2: And Attorney General Andrew Bailey, I know that you have to uh, run this morning. Really appreciate your time. Um, So last question for you. How can parents who want uh, to help get involved and help in their states uh, follow this Missouri blueprint?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, check us out at ago.mo.gov. That's ago.mo.gov. You can follow the work we're doing
2: and delivering wins
1: for the safety of the children of the state of Missouri and creating a national blueprint for other states to follow to protect kids as well.
2: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. I really appreciate you joining us this morning, and I know that we are all praying for you, and we're praying for this country against the depravities, as you rightly call it, of the left. So thank you, sir.
1: Thank you. All the best to you and your listeners.
2: Thanks. All right. Well, that was Attorney General Andrew Bailey. Appreciate him uh, joining us for a few minutes this morning. And I had the opportunity uh, to talk with him for uh, a lot longer, actually, yesterday on my podcast. And so if you want to um, hear kind of the the more robust conversation and um, we got into some of the worldview analysis and some other things, you can find that at the Jenna Ellis show dot com. And uh, that was the podcast for yesterday. And, you know, these types of issues, while we have all of these other things that are going on And it it feels like there are attacks from the left at every direction. Uh, the significant wins that we're actually seeing, um, I think are very important to highlight because we are winning in states that are going on the offensive. And I love that um, Attorney General Andrew Bailey, among others, uh, Jeff Landry, who's the AG out of uh, Louisiana. There are people, great people in uh, the state of Mississippi, uh, you know, of course, where AFA is located um, and, and others in other states that are moving the needle forward. And I think it's important for us as Christians and conservatives to recognize that being on the defensive always will never actually move the ball, the ball forward. And so we have to look at the powers of government and use them, of course, within the the margins and the contours of uh, the Constitution and within the limited legitimate powers of government, but actually continue uh, to to advance civil society and a more perfect union, as our founders would have said, um, in a way that is meaningful and actually continues uh, to push forward the conservative agenda, the biblical worldview, uh, the things that are right and truthful. And so we still, even in the midst of an absolutely insane society that I think is continuing um, toward even Uh, We we thought we reached peak insanity. I don't think we have yet, unfortunately. Um, But as the left continues to get more and more crazy with their ideology, with their evil, and with the false worldview, we have to continue to promote truth and goodness. Uh, Because if we don't and we always stay on the defensive posture then we're never going to have these types of wins like in Missouri to protect children. We're never going to have the type of wins like now in my current home state of Florida um, against the central bank digital currency. Um, One of the great things that I'm really uh, grateful that the legislature and Governor Ron DeSantis did here uh, was to say that under the Uniform Commercial Code in the state of Florida, any sort of a central bank digital currency that the feds may in the future, and I think that that's going to be very soon, try to to uh, to then control our finances and our money in order to uh, tell conservatives what we can and can't do with our freedom and liberty with our own money, um, that is now outlawed under the Uniform Commercial Code. That's protecting the state from those types of forced manipulations from the federal government that would be petty and tyrannical. Um, those types of things aren't uh, necessarily, what the mainstream media and the legacy media are going to uh, report all the time, because uh, they like to look at what is going wrong and, uh, and and promote more of the fear and the the news um, headline in the journalist world is always if it bleeds, it leads, and and that's that's a a catchphrase from a long time ago in journalism, but it's true in the sense that. Uh, with legacy media, often if you can instill fear in your listeners, then they will be captive to watch more hours, and that's really their goal. You know, their goal, of course, is um, is advertisers and at times entertainment, not necessarily uh, bringing you the news and encouraging you in the truth of God. And so, one of the things that I absolutely want to do here um, on this program is to always also bring you the good news and. Uh, tell you how we can still get involved. We still have a United States of America, even though there are a lot of things that are going wrong and we have to defend against those things. We also have to be pushing forward as well. And we have to continue to get engaged and involved because if we don't and we just say, well, look at this, you know, our elections are going sideways. Our um, elected officials are not doing the right thing. I'm frustrated that the Republicans just have these strongly worded letters. Uh, They don't seem to be doing anything. Thing, then we're actually, uh, in my view, derelicting our duty and our responsibility that we have under the blessings of liberty in this nation to be an active and engaged Christian everywhere that we are at in this society. So we have to continue to move forward. And so some of these things that are encouraging, that we see like coming out of the state of Missouri, are really great wins. And we need to take those wins and move them forward. If you live in a state that can possibly follow the Missouri blueprint, go find uh, that Senate Bill 49. Take that legislation and ask your state legislature, are you carrying this bill? Are you protecting children in this state? Even if you live in a blue state, go and ask. Uh, go and ask the most conservative legislator and say, carry that bill anyway. I'll show up and testify because I care about moving this forward for our country. We have to continue to create a more perfect union on the scale and standard of the truth of the word of God. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back. And speaking of good news, uh, Devin, one of our great producers here in The Break, uh, told me that pumpkin spice is exploding on menus because there is such a popular demand for it because I was saying that I am drinking pumpkin spice coffee this morning, of course I am, and if you are not either, I question your life choices. Uh, you should be drinking pumpkin spice. And so I actually went in and Googled this, and according to a Restaurant Business Online, their headline is actually, pumpkin spice is exploding on menus, and it's earlier than ever due to the high demand. Isn't, isn't that great? So we always bring you all the good news. <laughs> here on uh, Jenna Ellis in the morning. But let's turn to uh, now artificial intelligence, which uh, is not necessarily good news. And I think that conservatives need to be um, very wary of artificial intelligence and the potential dangers that uh, this may impose in terms of government regulation and oversight. And according to a piece in Axios this morning, um, the CEOs, including uh Uh, Musk and Zuckerberg are heading to Capitol Hill. So the CEOs of the most powerful U.S. tech companies are heading to Capitol Hill next month for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's first AI Insight Forum. So that will be very interesting. And joining me now to discuss is Carl Zabo, who is uh, of course, the um, vice president and general counsel for NetChoice and a professor of internet law at George Mason University. So, Carl, great to have you back on the program. And uh, what do we anticipate from this type of uh, AI forum on Capitol Hill? That that seems a little concerning to me.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me back. And it, it should be because You know, on the one hand, we want our elected leaders to actually understand information, understand technology, understand what they are being asked to regulate. But on the other hand, it is very likely that this will turn into kind of a food fight grandstand discussion about things that aren't necessarily AI related. Right now, we are having a very immature conversation from many of our elected leaders on the issue of, quote, AI. So I'll give you an example. California uh, introduced a bill to ban and regulate all algorithms. And so what is an algorithm? An algorithm is basically just something that helps me make a decision. So when I push a button on the elevator to go up or down, there's an algorithm, a computer, that decides which floor it should stop it. So right now we're having very immature discussions on AI. So what I'm actually doing, I'm actually doing giving several presentations across the country on this, trying to help people understand what is artificial intelligence, what does it actually mean for us. And more often than not, the conversation devolves into one of two camps, either AI is racist or AI is the terminator. And these are issues that we can actually address, that we already have laws on the books to address, and that we are able to deal with today. So, for example, if I were to engage in discrimination, whether it's somebody walks into my office and I don't like what they're wearing, I don't like uh, you know something about them, and I give them an inappropriate dismissal, we have laws today, many of them, that make bias, discrimination in hiring, lending, housing, all these things, uh, illegal. And it doesn't matter how you do it, whether it's me looking at you or whether it's done through a computer. And so what we're oftentimes doing is seeking new laws to regulate things that we can already regulate today. And so from these discussions, I worry that we're going to see a big push to ban AI, to a six-month delay on development, or we're going to see certain businesses trying to block competitors and new innovations from coming. And that's really myopic. That's the real danger for us, because uh, we, we know this. If we ban technology, we ban development, the only people who are going to comply are going to be the good actors. Our foreign adversaries, criminals who are using AI to engage in fraud, deception, theft, all these bad actions. They're going to continue to develop and use AI in ways that we don't want them to. And that doesn't even get to the whole issue of what our foreign adversaries like Iran, China, Russia are going to use and develop and get ahead of us in AI. So that's kind of what, what I'm expecting. i are expecting, unfortunately, not much and giving an excuse for certain lawmakers, certain businesses to stop America's innovation, stop America's development.
2: Wow, and, and this really does seem very short-sighted uh, to to simply say, well, you know, AI is racist, and fit this very neatly into uh, more of the liberal view, and and bring up uh, more of the uh, DEI sorts of considerations that the left thinks are so paramount, instead of actually addressing the issue, which is what is AI, and if America uh, doesn't stay ahead of this and actually have substantive uh, commentary and um, discussions about potential regulation, then uh, we're going to get behind. And and it also strikes me, as you're saying, you know, these are very non-sophisticated conversations. Um, it, it reminds me of some of the hearings where, uh, you know, some of the, the members that you know really are just let's let's face it in the much older generations that don't use some of the latest technology or aren't aware of it talking for example about social media i mean some of these members who clearly aren't on snapchat you know they're not on tiktok and yeah. so they're not speaking and conversing in understanding what they're even dealing with and so how can they possibly try to regulate this or uh, or do anything in America's best interest from a legislative perspective if they don't even understand the nature of the tech that they're dealing with.
3: Exactly. And, you know, the, part, of the, part of the concern that I'm starting to see is, so a lot of, a lot of these businesses will go to these meetings. They, they want to be in the room where it happens. And so the Biden administration actually just released their, quote-unquote, voluntary commitments uh, from AI companies. And of course, these AI companies are kind of strong armed into these meetings. Uh, you know, the, the way it plays out is, you know, your competitor will be there. Don't you want to be there too? And say, okay, yeah, I guess I do. And they focus on these, these distractions like fairness and bias, publicized capabilities and societal risks. Um, and, and it's all centered around kind of these woke agenda items rather than looking at issues that are affecting us on day-to-day basis. I'm a teacher, and for every teacher and every student, every parent across the nation, for the first time in the course of human history, we're dealing with AI in the classroom. The ability of students to basically put in a couple of words and generate entire essays. And this is a new challenge that our elected leaders aren't really discussing, that needs to be discussed, and will actually impact Americans Today, on a daily basis, and it impacts teachers today as we go back to school. And so those are some of the conversations that should be happening, not whether it is going to be used to engage in discrimination, because, once again, if anybody engages in discrimination, we have laws today to address it. Not that it's going to become the Terminator and destroy us all because we can control it. So (laughs) these are the discussions that need to be happening is how it impacts Americans today.
2: Yeah, and and that makes so much more sense. Uh, Carl Zabo, who is the vice president and general counsel for NetChoice. And you also wrote a great piece uh, recently in Fox News. And the title, uh, the headline there is, The Biden administration is giving away America's AI dominance. And uh, giving away our global AI leadership in a war to advance the progressive agenda. So how concerning is this that the leftists and the Biden administration is attempting to regulate uh, AI based on woke standards instead of uh, metrics and standards that they should be using?
3: Yeah, this is one of the big dangers, too. Look, we've spent the last three years having our freedoms just taken away from us. Right now, many of us across the country can't even go and buy a gas stove. And the lack of energy independence has made us critically dependent on foreign adversaries, like uh, like Russia, like Iran, for their oil. Because, well, basically we gave away our energy independence. What we are seeing from the Biden administration is the same effort to give away our technological independence. We are hearing calls from the quote-unquote elite to stop development of artificial intelligence, whatever that may be, because of the potential societal risks. They want to make sure that uh, AI doesn't create disinformation or misinformation or election interference, whatever those terms may or may not mean, to people on the left are very different from what they may or may not mean to people on the right and so rather than letting Americans have the freedom to innovate freedom to get information to seek out information and make decisions for themselves, what we are seeing from many people uh, including this administration is that they want to control AI they want to control the businesses that develop it, and they want to make sure that whatever content is used is not used to dismirch the names of President Biden or the Democratic Party. And this gets into the discussion that, that we had last week on misinformation and disinformation, which are these catch-all phrases. And instead, they are being used now by the Democrats to control the next piece of innovation, next piece of technology, which is AI, and trying to make sure that, quote, disinformation and misinformation is not permeated or populated by that. And, you know, there is a way to deal with this. I look at AI, and the way to address AI is kind of a three-legged stool. You have transparency, accountability, and security. All of this can be done by businesses. All this can be done by self-reg. All this can be done by Americans without government. Transparency, tell people when it's AI-generated. Accountability, every single law, we have hundreds of them, if not thousands, that apply to normal people, apply to AI. And finally, security. When you're collecting and using data to retrain, make sure that you're not using per, people's personal sensitive information without their consent. If we follow those three rules, we don't need the government. We don't need it coming in. We don't need it throttling this next great innovation.
2: And that's really interesting. And, and I think um, your, your observation that this new technology already falls under a lot of the laws and regulations that we already have on the books is very smart because we've seen throughout um, America's history and certainly um, in the, 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 uh, the, you know, the tech innovation and and other things that obviously um, speech online, for example, still falls under the First Amendment in, in certain ways. And we already have um, certain case law and, and jurisprudence that would cover some of these other things. It's not that it's it, it, we have to recreate the wheel when we're talking about a written document from a quill pen versus uh, typing this out on um, on a letter that you post online. I mean, there are some things, and, and obviously the analogies and the way that they are analogous can be debated, but it's not like we have to go back and create an entire separate body of law that will cover all of these things. And so from a from more of a 30,000 foot perspective, um, what are maybe in your mind some of the benefits of AI? Because it seems like um, to me when we're talking about this in the media more broadly, um, there is more concern over it or maybe just um, fear of it, because I think people really don't understand exactly what it is, what it's capable of, what it can be used for. So they do then tend to say, well, this is going to be like the Terminator. And you know, Elon Musk has said this may take over the world and end humanity as we know it. And so because of the lack of, of genuine understanding of what it is, Um, then then maybe we tend to overreact or just react that this is all negative instead of some of the potentials.
3: So let me give you two examples that I think really strike home in in part for me. Uh, Breast cancer is a good example. So right now, AI is able to look at millions, if not billions of mammograms. And that's something no human could ever do. We don't don't have enough time. And it can look for patterns, and it does it way better than we do because it has perfect recollection and perfect memory. And it can look through these millions of mammograms, and it can actually detect precancerous cells better than a radiologist can, better than a doctor can because, well, it can learn. And it can actually be better at detecting breast cancer before it becomes a problem. And that is being used today. And that is a tool and technology that can be used in the cloud. So you don't have to have the best radiologists, the best doctors in your community. You can now get access to this technology. So it's democratizing this health benefit. The same thing's true for uh, credit risk and uh, things like that. So we can actually make sure that people who are able to qualify for a loan, qualify for a mortgage, they can get access. And then finally, spam filtering. One of the best ways that we block junk calls, uh, fake emails, stuff like that, is spam filtering. And that's all done through adaptive learning of machines. They see what patterns the bad guys are using, and they take steps to stop it. And so these are just a couple of the basic examples, not to mention the democratization, the ability for everyone to become better writers, better artists, better developers, better innovators. Uh, That's really what I'm looking forward to. And then... As we go into this school year, and I'm I'm sorry, I keep coming back to that. My kids just went back to school this week. Um, you know, when calculators entered the classroom, everyone freaked out. We're going to have a death of arithmetic. We're going to have a death of math. And no, we still teach it. But what did calculators do? They allowed our students to actually do much more advanced mathematics at an earlier age. And we're going to see that with AI, where companies like the Khan Academy are creating customized learning experiences for people who do at-home learning, people who need a tutor but can't afford them. And so that's where AI is really going to come in. It's going to really help lift the people at the bottom up. And sometimes that's what scares the people at the top the most.
2: Mm, yeah, because it's a threat to their power. But uh, the, you know, this is always really interesting. And I think that we need to learn more about what the technology can be used for and then Uh, make sure that the parameters of regulation are not so that we just protect the elites, but that we protect freedom and liberty and obviously uh, not allowing AI to be used for evil or nefarious purposes. But we do that with everything that we contemplate. So Carl Zabo, Vice President and General Counsel for NetChoice, always appreciate having you on the program. And uh, those forums on Capitol Hill will be held September 13th. So we will circle back on this show when that happens. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back. And, you know, speaking of artificial intelligence and uh, social media and some of these things that have advanced in technology, uh, it, it's fascinating to me because we are living in a very, very different Presidential cycle and election cycle in 2023 than, for example, even you know the 1980s when when I was born and and to see how technology has genuinely changed how we approach a lot of things, uh, how we approach the public forum, how we are um, exposed to and aware of a lot more content than just what the legacy media prefers to share. Uh, all of those things are good in some ways and can definitely be negatives in other ways. Um, but it's really interesting to me, and, and and all of you who listen to this show regularly know that I am actually a fan of social media, Twitter, uh, that now is X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, that, that there's so much that is available in terms of content on social media, if you follow the right people, if you uh, see what's being shared, some of those trends, that can uh, promote more, I think, interesting discussion than just what the legacy media and these gatekeepers would like to say in terms of the Republicans versus the Democrats and where the fault lines lie. And so uh, yesterday, as I'm, of course, uh, scanning X, there was a video that surfaced that was totally fascinating to me because this is an 18-year-old Vivek Ramaswamy who is actually on MSNBC asking then-Democratic candidate Al Sharpton a question. And to me, this video was fascinating just from the perspective of Uh, A lot of people who are questioning um, some of his background and uh, some of his his competence in terms of, um, you know, being 38 years old. I mean, he's he's my age uh, to run for president. And and so the question that he actually asked and the response, I also think is fascinating because it, it pinpoints. Um, even back then, now what other people are asking Vivek himself in terms of uh, how he is moving forward in the presidential news cycle. So I want to play this clip, uh, which is, I believe, cut four. Question here, go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello. I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and, and, and the week before, we had Senator Edwards, and my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there... Why should I vote for the one with the least political experience?
4: Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. (laughs) I got involved in the political uh, movement when I was 12 years old. And I've been involved in social policy for the last 30 years. So don't confuse people that have a job with political experience. (laughs) Uh, Whoever the head of, uh, uh, of, of some local bureaucracy has a job in Cambridge. That doesn't mean that they have political experience, and it doesn't mean they have experience to uh, run the United States uh, government. So I think that we confuse title holders with political experience, as we have, uh, have seen with the present occupant in the White House. George Bush was a governor and clearly has shown he doesn't have political experience. <laughs>
2: All right. So, so this is fascinating to me because you're seeing a young Vivek Ramaswamy who is engaging in at least some. Uh, politics and some of you know his record has has shown that he wasn't a very engaged voter. He's addressed that openly. And by the way, he's going to come back on the show. He's been out on the campaign trail. They've been all uh, really incredibly busy. And so um, he has has promised as soon as he can he will uh, come back on the show because I know a lot of you have sent me questions for him and have really appreciated him being on the program. So um, he has just been really busy, understandably. But uh, will definitely come back and we'll have more of this conversation with him. But um, but I think. What's interesting here uh, on a number of levels, but what's interesting in this particular clip. Is that he's asking the same question about uh, political experience that is now being asked of him? And so the question that a lot of people asked on social media when um, somebody just out there found this clip, and, and I think it's fascinating how people can go back into the archives and they can bring up some of the stuff in the past. And sometimes it, it's not really relevant, or it's meant uh, to just you know humiliate, or to say, "Oh, look, you're so different now than you were 20 years ago." And it's like, yeah, hopefully all. All of us have um, have moved forward in terms of advancing our worldview, um, being perfected in uh, the image of Christ. If we are Christians, that should be our goal. I hope that my views have gotten better over the last 20 years in terms of being more and more Christ-like. But I think that uh, for you know some of these these politicians like Vivek, how his view may have, uh, it may be different now after he has been an entrepreneur, he's now engaged in politics, he has a family, Um, all of those things are going to change your perspectives then when you're 18, you know, you're a kid out of college and you're asking these questions. So I think, you know, for some people who are asking him, oh, wow, you sound so different. Look, you're asking the Democrat candidate a question. It's like, well, I'd love to ask Democrat candidates a question. I'd love to have Joe Biden on the show. Does that mean that I'm going to support him? Absolutely. Not, but I'd love to ask him those questions. So just the mere fact that he's there, to me is is totally fine. What's interesting about it to me is the question that I w- want to ask Vivek, and I actually tweeted this at him uh, yesterday. Was does he agree now? With what Al Sharpton said back in you know the early 2000s, I think this was uh, if I'm doing the math right, and never trust lawyers on math, but if I'm doing the math right, this would have been uh, the the 2004 presidential election. So you know, does he agree now t- with what Al Sharpton said 20 years ago about experience in politics, saying vote for the person who has the most experience? Um, And of course, he made that joke saying, because I'm the one with most experience. But then he goes on to say, because, you know, don't confuse having a job with understanding politics. And there's a lot of things I could disagree with Al Sharpton about. Uh, but I actually think there's a nugget of truth there that you can't just say that because we are we are all, um, you know, well-meaning, good citizens and we want to engage in politics, that that necessarily means we understand some of the ins and outs of uh, political power of our Constitution, staying within the margins of the Constitution like we talked about earlier um, in the show. And and I think that that is one of the pitfalls, frankly, of Uh, Donald Trump's first four years in his administration was that he was a great CEO, I think at the time, you know, very much needed in our country in 2016, but not understanding and not knowing how D.C. worked, he shined a light on what was going on, but ultimately was not as successful as he could have been because he really didn't understand how the political system worked in terms of um, all of the people who would say that they're working for him, but they were actually undermining his position while being appointed in the administration. Um, My good friend Ken Cuccinelli, who worked for the Trump administration, uh, said on this show uh, a couple of months ago that he was so frustrated um, when he was in DHS that there was a lot he couldn't do that he knew that the president wanted to to uh, move forward with his agenda that Ken actually couldn't do because of the other people that were around him that were also appointees or, you know, other members of the deep state. And that's a whole other problem. But I think that that raises an interesting question, not only for Vivek, but for uh, the rest of some of these other candidates that we are all considering in terms of a primary. So Vivek did respond. um, He actually posted the clip himself and said this, I'll give the 18-year-old version of myself a pat on the back for eliciting the most sensible words to ever come from that man's mouth. 20 years later, it's funny how the tables have turned. And he puts a smiley face emoji. Um, so I, I think that that was a, a fun nod to, I, I see this clip, I'm going to address it, but he really didn't get to the substance of the question, which is, does he agree with those, in his term, sensible words that you need to have political experience? And of course, you know, now Donald Trump does have political experience um, and and he's, and he's certainly seen that in his <laughs> first four years of office. But for Vivek, He is coming in saying he's the outsider and doesn't have political experience. So does he agree 20 years later with that? I don't know. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, So that could never happen, really, you know, some of those clips, unless you have a producer on Legacy Media that finds this and the, the anchor decides to use their time to play this clip. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's more of a gotcha moment. They don't preview it and tell uh, the person coming on, hey, I'm going to play this for you. I mean, even when I used to go on um, networks on behalf of President Trump when I was still working for him, um, a number of the the leftist uh, news networks would try to at times use my words against me. And I'd be like, now, I'm, I'm consistent. Glad you played that clip. Uh, let me expound on that for you. But they do that on purpose, not telling you that they're going to so that they can have these kind of gotcha moments, which I think is just bad journalism. It's not it's not really fair to the candidate or or to the person who is the interviewee. Um, you want to ask them frank uh, and direct questions, but also tell them, you know, here's what I'm going to ask and I want to have a conversation, not just try to see if you can, you know, get them off their game. I mean, that that shouldn't, in my view, ever be what a journalist genuinely does, because if you're truth-seeking, if you're wanting uh, to get to the facts, and if you want someone's genuine opinion on the facts, then you ask them reasonable questions. You prep that in advance um, and you tell them. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not how the mainstream media works uh, these days. But I think that um, overall, the landscape of social media can give rise to some of these clips that are totally fascinating that we would never see in any other context. And um, speaking of legacy media interviews, um, NBC asked Governor DeSantis on the Trump indictment and weaponized government and this clip also surfaced on social media yesterday because a lot of people myself included were asking Governor DeSantis uh, why he really hasn't addressed this openly and um and in my view I think no matter what you think of uh of President Trump as a candidate Governor DeSantis decided to run in this cycle where he knew very well that um, not only had the New York indictment been handed down, but that there was potential um, indictments coming out of, you know, the DOJ and uh, now this one out of Georgia. And I think that he should have been prepared to address that and uh, prepared to be a leader and to say, I mean, I think it would have been so much more powerful if he had gone out on the stage in the debate and said, Listen, I am uh, Ron DeSantis. I am Donald Trump's governor because he chose to move to my state because of my leadership. And I will be Donald Trump's president because I'm the only one that has actually accomplished all the things that I've said and then go into all of his record. I mean, be a leader. Address this directly. Don't just ignore it because it happens to be your political opponent. Otherwise, you're ignoring the scope of what's happening to everyone else. I mean, myself included now, but also all of the Americans over the last you know, four plus years that have been targeted by a weaponized left. So this was actually a great response. And um, we're almost running out of time in the show here. So I want to make sure to get to this clip. Uh, This is Cut 5 NBC interviews Governor DeSantis. You believe uh, the justice system is two tiered, that it's weaponized. But when Trump is spending his arraignment day attacking you, (laughs) I mean, why not fight back and point, out the, be- and point out the downsides of being a president who is under three, maybe four indictments?
0: Well, two, couple things. One, uh, it's not really about Donald Trump, because I think that if the justice system is not fair, uh, if it is weaponized, and I talk more about uh, Mark Houck, was a pro-life activist, had a SWAT team go to his house. I talk about the parents that were identified going to school board meetings in Virginia. Talk about the fact that the FBI had a memo identifying traditional Roman Catholics as potential but you know terrorists ends up being but, but about that, Trump but that is ultimately why it's more important than just one former elected official um, second thing is is you know at the end of the day um, I've been very clear about how we win the election if the election is a referendum on Joe Biden's policies and the failures that we've seen and we are presenting a positive vision for the future, we will win the presidency uh, and we will have a chance to turn the country around. If, on the other hand, uh, the election is not about January 20th, 2025, but January 6th, 2021, or what document was left by the toilet at Mar-a-Lago, if it's a referendum on that, we are going to lose. But and with that's Trump just in the reality. race,
2: you know with Trump in the race, that is largely what it's going to be about. And right now and you're, not not, not, Biden, that's, that's you're not fighting against Joe Biden, you're fighting against
0: Trump. Not a, that's not a pathway for success for the Republican Party. I think a lot of our voters understand that. Uh, look, I'm, one of the reasons I, I ran for president was because I think I'm the only candidate who can win the primary win the general and then actually get all this stuff done. uh, The reality is you don't want distractions I mean, this this is hard enough, the issues facing the country. You've gotta be focused. You've gotta be disciplined. You gotta go in there knowing you wanna talk about slaying the administrative state. They are not gonna give up power willingly. You gotta be somebody that knows how to operate. You can't be suffering under distractions. You can't have all this other uh, drama that, that's doing it. So I have made that point, And I think more and more Republican voters agree. Yes, we think he's been treated poorly and unfairly, but that doesn't mean then that he's the guy you want to nominate against Joe Biden.
2: I think that was one of the best answers that Governor DeSantis has given. And if he had been that strong in the debate, he would have seen a bump in the polls. I don't really trust the polls, but I think he would have seen that. So we'll continue to talk about it all. You can always reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. Make it a great day and continue to live in the truth and joy of Christ, our Lord and Savior. I'll see you tomorrow morning.